and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by HarperCollins Australia. Listeners, if you grew up reading fairy tales as I did, then you'll be keen to hear from my next guest. Kel Woods is an Australian historical fantasy author whose debut novel is set to be released in September and October this year across Australia, New Zealand, the UK and the US. Called After the Forest, Kel has written a rich, compelling and utterly remarkable fairy tale retelling. Set in the Black Forest of Württemberg during the mid-17th century, the story picks up after 15 years after Greta and her brother Hans escape from an old witch and her gingerbread house. In the aftermath of a brutal war and with no one but her gambling brother to help look after her, Greta bakes the best gingerbread around in an effort to keep her family afloat. But rumours about her continue to swirl and the superstitions of the villagers are becoming harder to keep at bay. Weaving history, fantasy, romance and fairy tale together, this book had me turning pages deep into the night and made me a lifelong fan of Kel's obvious storytelling abilities. I just love this book. And naturally, I'm thrilled to welcome Kel to the podcast today to chat about her impending release. Hi, Kel. Hello, Claudine. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're so welcome. Now, Kel, I know we're still a few weeks away from publication at this point in time, but by the time, you know, this goes to air, it'll be close to being released, if not already released. Mm -hmm. But let me just say what a joy it was to read this novel. I felt as if I'd been transported back to my childhood, reading something so clearly otherworldly and fantastic. So I wanted to say congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's amazing. How are you feeling? (laughs) Good. Yeah. It's like it took a long time for this time to get here with the, you know, lead up to publication and the release date. It felt like, because it was a couple of years ago when it all started, but now it's here and it's moving quite quickly. It's very exciting. Uh, I can only imagine. So, Kel, when you began writing or when you imagined yourself as a published writer, was this what you had in mind, writing fantasy and fairy tales? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. I think I I remember telling somebody when I was maybe seven or eight, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be an author or a vet of large animals. (laughs) You know, Uh, A bit of a swing there, but I always wanted to write. And when I remember writing stories about history and magical things when I was a kid and a teenager, and it was really when I read a book by Kate Forsythe called Bitter Greens, and I'd also read Juliet Marillia's Daughter of the Forest, that I went, oh, wow, these books that mix history and fairy tale and take a fairy tale and put it into a real historical time. That was just a winning combination for me. I just thought, you know, there's something about having them having this, you know, far, far away magical tale and then setting it somewhere that's familiar and real. It's very compelling and it feels, it, it just draws you in. Yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up wanting to write something like this. Yeah. As I said in my introduction, compelling and gripping and yeah just kept me turning pages and I just I I cannot recommend this story highly enough it it is just stunning so 
Kel, what is it that drew you to write these stories and to reimagining Hansel and Gretel in particular, as well as Snow White? Well, yeah, I, I wanted to write something. I think I started probably with like ideas come sort of gradually. So I read Bit of Greens. I thought I want to do something with fairy tales. I started, I think I started looking at different fairy tales and choosing a, a few that were all based in the forest that had a certain vibe that sort of matched. I kind of call them the, I, in my mind, I sort of thought of them as the forest fairy tales. They had either children, you know, like Hansel and Gretel going into the forest. Snow White is, is also abandoned and lost in the forest. And then there's also in Snow White and Rose Red, the two sisters, they live in the forest and they meet the bear, that kind of thing. So there was definitely something between those three stories that all had that kind of forest vibe. And then I wasn't originally going to use Hansel and Gretel, but I thought no one's done anything with that fairy tale for a while. And I'd, I'd never seen a novel for adults that had that was focused on Hansel and Gretel. So I think I chose that because I thought, oh, that there's something there. There's definitely something there. Do something with that fairy tale. So that's when I sort of started thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. And so was there a particular time when you were thinking about Hansel and Gretel that you thought, oh, gee, I wonder whatever happened to them after they escaped? That's exactly how it started for me, Claudine. It was like, okay, so, you know, what would life have been like for these kids who've gone through this incredibly traumatic experience? And that's a really dark fairy tale. It's not fun. It's it's terrifying. And, yeah, so I was sort of thinking, imagine if they were real kids and that really happened to them. How would they grow up? What kind of adults would they be? What would the after effects of that experience be for them. So I was really about trying to make them real people. Fantastic. So can you tell us more about the story, Kel? Yeah. So as we said, it's it's set 15 years after the traumatic misadventure in the forest and the children are now grown up and they're in their 20s. Hans is quite selfish and reckless and obviously has some lingering <laughs> trauma and damage from his you know horrifying experience as a child and Greta also has lingering trauma and terrors but it's funny how the two of them have really different ways of expressing and showing that they've got very different ways of handling the past so yeah you've got these two living in this little tiny black forest village in Germany it's the middle of the 17th century and they're sort of struggling to get by. It's just the end of the 30 years war has just passed. So they were a couple of years out from that war, which was an incredibly brutal war. And life was very tough for people living in what is now Germany during that time. In the middle of all of this, you've got Greta sort of baking this amazing gingerbread, this delicious, addictive, magical gingerbread that she bakes with the help of the grimoire that she took from the witch's house when they escaped. And because Greta's gingerbread is so addictive and she's a little odd, she spends a lot of time in the woods and she has red hair, which back in the day meant that you were a witch. You know, generally having red hair was not a great thing. She's a little bit outcast from the village and treated with suspicion and mistrust. And so when some strange, dark happenings begin to come back to the to the valley and some dark things begin to happen in the woods, she realises that, you know, maybe the past isn't as far behind her as she thought. 
and uh, yeah, she needs to look look within to see how she's going to survive. I know we started talking about the fact that you wanted to take one of these fairy tales or a couple as, as you have and place them within an accurate historical framework, but I'm fascinated to understand how you start writing something like this. Did you start with the research and did you know where you were headed when you began writing or did the story reveal itself to you the further along you went? I started by looking at where I would set it. So the setting is really important to me. I've just been, I've just finished the draft for my second novel, which is also same thing, historical, but fantasy fairy tale set in a real place. And so I've, I've figured out now that the setting is incredibly important. So I started by thinking, well, where could I set this? Let's have a little look at Hansel and Gretel. Where would they have lived if they were? Let's make it real. Where would they be? And the Schwarzwald, so the Black Forest in Germany, started to leap out at me as I started to uh, have a look at, at Germany and forests and that kind of thing. Yeah, so I started by figuring out the when and the where and then I started to flesh the story out. I do like planning, so I, I was planning as I went. But because I was, it's my debut, it was my first book, I was learning as I went. So I uh, had to backtrack sometimes and I got confused sometimes. It, you know, it takes a little longer and and you have to learn as you go, I think, when you're learning how to write your first novel. Yeah, so a bit of planning, a bit of pantsing, lots of thinking, lots of revising and just always trying to bring it back to um, the real landscape and the real history. You've talked about the brutal war, a religious war that lasted for mm. a very long time, but also threaded within this story and and the historical nature of, of when you set it was uh, the witch trials. I'm interested to know what kind of research you did to bring this story to the page. Yeah, so the witch trials is a really interesting thing and fitted in so perfectly with the, the time and what I wanted to do with the story because, you know, Historically, witch trials happened around times of upheaval, so war, famine, natural disasters, that kind of thing, things that damaged the crops and, and brought on famines and, you know, upheaval, not good things, would end up with, with people being accused of witchcraft. So in, during the Thirty Years' War, there were two of the biggest witch trials in German history, and that was the one in Bamberg and also in Würzburg. And they were appalling. Hundreds of people were burnt outside the town walls. It was uh, a really dark time. And so I thought, well, this is going to lend itself perfectly to you know, a book set in a little village with witches. It just kind of flowed very well. And I looked at the actual trials. I found I did a lot of reading about, because it's all documented, so you can look into exactly what they would have done and how a witch trial would have run. And I learned very quickly that the German witch trials were different to the ones in England. So in England, they, they did the trial. So they would, you know how they would dunk them? They would put the women or the men underwater and if they floated, they were a witch. And if they sank, they were innocent. They didn't do that in Germany. Uh, they used a lot of torture. So things like thumb screws and some pretty horrific things and then they tended to burn witches that also fitted in quite well with Hansel and Gretel so I, the the history really really helped shape the plot and the story I all kept going back to the history all the time but I also understand that you visited the Black Forest is that correct yeah I did I went there for around a week 
maybe a little less on my own with my backpack. My German is terrible. So I stumbled my way, <laughs> stumbled my way through. Uh, people kept saying to me, it doesn't matter if you don't know German. Everybody speaks English. But I soon found that in the cities that might be the case, but it's not the case when you start getting down into the Black Forest and Bavaria and that sort of sort of mountainous small villages that even the person that works at the tourism office in this village I first went to, he didn't speak English. Oh, in no. The t- <laughs> the tourism tourism office. I was like, oh, I thought I'd be safe here, but no. So, yeah, got through with a backpack in terrible German and I went to a bear and wolf sanctuary and so I got to see the wolves and the bears, which was just amazing. And I went, they have open-air museums there, so I went to an open-air museum and I could walk through their little houses and see the mill working and see all the crops and just all that beautiful it was amazing just all that detail just there for you to walk through was was amazing and I went to Treeburb waterfall which ended up being a key location in the book it has all these layers levels of falls that cascade down the mountain it's incredibly beautiful yeah, so the, the research trip was oh, so important to go and have a look at the way things feel underfoot. I, I got over there and, I you know, the, the Black Forest is so so much rain compared to Australia. We're so dry. And so the, the all of the floor of the forest is really mossy and soft underfoot. And even, you know, walking through it in the morning and it rained during the night, there was all of these amazing golden drops of water falling through the pine trees like it was just magical and really beautiful so yeah the research trip was just I loved it (laughs) it was amazing (laughs) and happened upon a, a a nature guide named Monica at a market and she was selling all of these jams and spreads and things that she'd made with things that she found in the forest so I convinced her to take me out into the woods and show me all of the things like all the edible all the different trees what could be eaten and she did so she took me on a tour and we had this picnic in the ruins of a of an old schloss and she had all this amazing food from the forest and yeah she was wonderful so yeah it was great I think getting out into it and annoying people and saying can you take me into the forest is a good way (laughs) to get to get all that lovely detail talking about Greta and her red hair she's no ordinary young woman and she has powers that she doesn't really understand or fully realize when we first meet her so tell me about your inspiration for Greta yeah Greta was Greta was always going to be the main character I was always very intrigued by Hansel and Gretel as people and I kind of went back to the fairy tale too and thought well yeah okay so Hansel got locked up in the cage And so that would have been scary enough, but Gretel wasn't. Gretel was allowed to wander around the house and do the chores for the witch and she had a very different role. And I I guess that kind of comes back to history where housework and chores and baking would would have been traditionally female roles. And I, I accept that, but I also thought, but like, what if? What if there was something about this little girl that was different? There was, what if there was a reason that the witch didn't plan to eat her? So, yeah, once I started thinking along that line, I thought, well, you know, you could do a lot with this character. <laughs> you know, she could be quite an intriguing character with a lot of 
cool things going on with her. So that was that's how that idea came, you know, from that that why wasn't she locked up? Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So amongst the retelling of old tales and the history that you provided and, and set this tale in was a beautiful love story. And it's this romantic love, plus also the love that Greta has for her brother Hans that sees her develop into the woman that she was meant to be. She was powerful and she doesn't bend to the will of many men around her who tell her how she should behave or live. And she pretty much survived alone in the woods without protection of her family, a father long dead and an absent brother. And she managed to keep herself safe. Her reputation was both a shield and yet made her vulnerable at the same time, didn't it? Yeah, yes, it did. Because she had that distance and that she was sort of outcast and separate from this from the village, from society. So that protected her in a way, but deep loneliness, you know, I I felt that I really, I really felt that there would be all of that lingering trauma and heartbreak and loss of having lost the parents and then also just that loneliness. And so I guess I really wanted something positive to happen for her so that kind of that's where that angle came from (laughs) what I found fascinating was the fact that she was desired by many of the men in the village and yet used used the the fact that she was poor and that she didn't have a dowry as a as a tool to try and manipulate her really yeah definitely I think dowries were really important a lot of marriages would have been organized based on financial situations or agreements to do with land and I don't think it just would have been based on romantic love. I think the idea of romantic love leading to marriage happened later. So her past and her lack of family, lack of dowry, lack of money was definitely something that had, yeah, had issues and repercussions. Most Mm. certainly did. Kel, the road to publication for a new writer is not often an easy one. Yet you have managed to secure a simultaneous publication deal for your debut in three territories, as I mentioned earlier, which is absolutely incredible. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your journey to publication. Sure. So I probably it started for me when I applied for a mentorship, an emerging writers mentorship through the Australian Society of Authors. And I, I got into that. They take, at that point, they took 12 people a year in that program. This is a few years ago, and I'm not sure if they're still running it the same now. I applied for that because one of the authors who was offering to do the mentorships was Kate Forsyth. And I very much knew that I wanted to write something like Bitter Greens and Kate's other books. And I really loved her style and I really liked her writing and I just the only way I could have got a mentorship with her was through that program she's very busy teaching and writing and she only does one a year through the ASA and so I I really wanted that mentorship so luckily I got it and then I had Kate Kate's help working on the manuscript back and forth to get it sort of polished up and then Kate gave me some some advice and we talked about where I should submit the book two, would it would it be something that would be sought after in Australia being fantasy or would it be better to try overseas? I did want to get an agent as well because I, I just thought if it's going to go better overseas or if it's going to be appealing overseas, I would like to have an agent who could help me with that kind of thing. 
yeah, so I looked at Australian agents and no one was interested in fantasy and their books weren't open, like their lists, a lot of them weren't. It was all during COVID, mm. you know, so it was a really weird time. Everything had just come to a stop. So I ended up not having much luck with agents in Australia and so I thought, okay, I'll just start submitting overseas. I'll just go for some in, in, in the States and in the UK because you can do that. You can just send your book to it, to them. It doesn't matter where you are. You can just submit to them. So I, I started doing that and that's how I found my agent, Julie Chris. She's wonderful and she saw my book on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning in the UK and by Thursday we were on Zoom having a meeting and she was offering me representation. She just really loved the book. That's when it all got very exciting and then that uh, Julie kind of navigated me through pitching and we ended up selling the book to Tor in the States, which was just ridiculously exciting and something that I had dreamed of, you know, for a really long time. And then from there, it came through to the UK and to Australia as well. So that's kind of how it went. Kel, was this your first book that you'd been working on or, or had you completed others? No, this was the first one. Yeah, this was the first. It took me a long time. It took me years. But I think, you know, a lot of people do take a little longer with that first book because you're learning as you go. So, yeah, this is the first one. I started books you know, I had some terrible fantasy thing in my early 20s and I wrote all the time when I was a teenager. So I'd started and stopped and always writing, but this was the first one that I seriously looked at and went, okay, I really want to have a go at this. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to I'm going to see what I can do. So, yeah, <laughs> technically the first finished one. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I know it was the first one that you'd you'd finished but did you have a sense when you were writing this that this was something special that this was going to get you a publishing deal no I was plagued with doubt and I never thought that it was going I never thought that it was always like oh let's just see how it goes (laughs) I've done the best I can do with it the you know Kate had told me that it has legs that's the word she used after one of her writing classes I went to we were talking about it and I I told her about the book and she said keep going with this it has legs just keep going and I remembered that for a long time I was like no keep going just keep going it has legs (laughs) go (laughs) you can you know just finish it (laughs) oh oh, I love that that's wonderful (laughs) Kel if there was one thing you'd like readers to take away from this novel what would it be I kind of wrote a the kind of book that I like to read, which is a book that you can completely disappear into and escape from the world. Like I like, you know, I like to read to to be somewhere different and somewhere new and somewhere magical and somewhere beautiful. So if readers can immerse themselves in this sort of fantastical yet familiar world and feel like they've had a break from (laughs) from life and have just been on a journey then I'll be happy it's you know I hope that it's the kind of book people can lose themselves in yeah well I certainly was lost in this book I absolutely loved it as I have said a number of times already (laughs) thank you (laughs) (laughs) I never get tired of it don't worry (laughs) oh well that's good that's really good because you're probably going to be hearing that a lot more from now on (laughs) 
there are a lot of writers who listen to this podcast and I often ask my guests if you have any tips um, or advice to give for those of us still trying to get published. Yeah, I do. I would say to keep going, to try and to keep a notebook and write down your little thoughts first thing in the morning. Sometimes those things can lead to really great scenes or dialogue. So just always have a pen and and a notebook nearby. I would recommend that you don't show any of your work, like if you're working on a manuscript and it's your, it's, you know, a significant size and it's finished and it's big and you decide you're going to give it to your dad or your friend Tom, don't do that because your dad and your friend Tom aren't going to really give you, unless they're in the publishing industry and they're editors or authors, um, then great, do that. But if they're not, you're not really going to get the advice or the criticism that you need, I feel, to take that further. And I remember giving early drafts of, of my work to friends and family and I could tell they didn't like it and it was not in it wasn't really ready to be seen and they had to lie and say oh yeah it was amazing (laughs) um you know and so I I would really try if you need to if you're going to show it to someone either try and get a mentorship or try and get um some kind of or pay someone if you can afford it try and get a professional to give you advice and feedback on how to make that manuscript better. It's going to need work, a lot of it. They don't just come out fully formed. (laughs) There's a lot of work that needs to go in to it. So I would, if you can, get a professional's advice or apply for mentorships, apply for all of those things that you can, all the prizes that offer, you know, mentorship and support. And don't be afraid to go further afield you know, pitch to or to agents in the UK and America. There's a lot of them and a lot of Australian writers have had success doing that. So don't be afraid to dream big, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I totally get it. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing those tips. They're wonderful. So, Kel, you mentioned that you just finished a draft of your second book. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so it's a it's another historical fantasy. When I signed with Tor, it was a two book deal. So this is the second uh, book in that deal. It's coming out also in the UK and in Australia as well. It's set to come out at the end of next year, uh, but it's very early days, so that may that could change. I'm not sure. And it's another fairy tale retelling. Can't say too much about it, but I can say that this fairy tale involves a character who doesn't really want to have her shiny tail anymore and would really like some legs. Sounds fascinating. (laughs) Uh, So, Kel, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, book or books as the case may be, where can they find you? Yeah, I have a website, um, kelwoods.com.au. Everything is on there and I'm also mostly on Instagram. I like Instagram and I'm on Facebook as well and also on Twitter or X, X, Twitter, X. I don't know. It's just Twitter. They can get me there. Once again, I absolutely loved After the Forest and I can't wait for listeners to be able to get their hands on this book. I wanted to say once again, congratulations and thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you so much, Claudine. It was lovely to be here and thank you so much for saying such kind things about the book. It's 
just made my day. Thank you. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.